Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern. And this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Our guest today is best-selling author, consultant, and facilitator, Dr. Jenny Donahue. Dr. Donahue's work focuses on the idea of collective efficacy, a belief system that asserts through teachers' shared beliefs and actions, schools can positively affect student outcomes. Something that, at first glance, might seem straightforward, but as you'll soon realize over the course of this episode, is infinitely complex. We use the concepts of beliefs, expectations, results, efforts, and collaboration to frame today's conversation. And I know that personally, my head is still spinning at the game-changing potential collective efficacy can have in education. Jenny's vision for a more collaborative school is one that I'm sure you'll find compelling. We all know that time is critical for people to come together to collaborate. That's always the number one uh, you know, factor that comes up when people talk about some of those barriers. Um, so if we can find the time, then I think it's also important to consider that people can come together to collaborate to reinforce the status quo, or they can come together to collaborate to reinvent teaching and learning. And so I think structures that um, engage teachers in joint problem solving are very important to ensure that the collaboration is, is focused on instructional improvement. And that can be efficacy enhancing because um, when we see that we're having an impact and that our joint effort and our joint work is making a difference, we start to then build a greater sense of efficacy together. Over the course of today's episode, we'll dive into a range of examples from psychology, history, and even our own lives to uncover the power of collective efficacy. We hope you enjoy. Our guest today is educational consultant and four-time best-selling author, Jenny Donahue. Today, we'll be exploring the topic of collective efficacy. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So can you unpack exactly what is collective efficacy? Collective efficacy is really a belief system, first and foremost. And it's when teachers believe that through their collective actions, that they can positively influence student outcomes, including those outcomes for students who might be disengaged, unmotivated, or disadvantaged. Do you think you can take us through, we ask all of our guests as we talked before we started recording, to, through the sort of the process of, of coming up with the, the bare bones, the most essential ideas. So, I, you know, Jenny's on, on my team and I've watched her present many times. I feel like I have a grasp of collective efficacy, but at the same time, it seems so complex. If you could boil it down to like three to five words, what would those be? Uh, sure, Julie. It is very complex. And it's, um, it's taken me quite some time in studying and, and reading and, and looking at research to, to feel that I've got a, a better understanding of it through the years. Um, if I had to boil it down to five critical words, those words would be beliefs, expectations, results, effort, and collaboration. Can you start with, I mean, or even maybe just tell us why you started with beliefs. That seems to be foundational to me, but I'd love to hear your, your sort of thought process behind beliefs and why that's essential. Sure. So beliefs is important because collective efficacy is a belief system. 
Um, it's a conviction that together teachers have what it takes to overcome some of those challenges and barriers. And it's um, interesting because collective efficacy is a future-oriented belief. Mm. And it's based on experiences that have happened in the past. Wow, I love to explore that. I've kind of gotten into meditation as I become a public speaker and need some stress management uh, um, techniques. And the idea of like being in the present moment and the concept of present and past and future, of course, is super important for me as a social studies educator. So it's like all three. It's almost like uh, ideas for the future based on experiences that have happened in the past are going to drive what you're going to do right now in the present moment. Is that, is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And then another important aspect to consider is that the beliefs are context specific or situationally specific. Ooh, we love context and situations here at Team <laughs> Learning Transfer. Tell us more about that. So um, a teacher, for example, might have a high sense of efficacy um, to be able to teach students in a face-to-face -face learning environment, mm. but maybe a diminished sense of efficacy when it comes to online learning. Uh, how many listeners can relate to that? I wish there was a way for people to raise their hands as they're listening to this podcast, but I can imagine we'll hear some hallelujahs as people are listening to that. Um, feeling efficacious in an uh, in-person setting, but not feeling efficacious in an online setting. What a great example of transfer or lack thereof. Are you finding that people have a hard time wrapping their head around that idea that efficacy is context specific? Because I feel like a lot of times when I hear people think or talk about Dweck's growth mindset, it's there's sort of this idea that it's like this universal, like, you know, hat you just put on. It's like, I have my growth mindset cap on and it exists in every single field. Um, well, that's clearly based on what you're saying. It sounds like that's not the case. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you communicate to teachers that you can have a, a belief, a really strong belief in your ability to change things in one context, but it doesn't always transfer. Right. And I, I think it, for teachers, it depends on, on, again, their previous experiences. If they've had a lot of success, let's say teaching language arts, and all of a sudden now they have uh, math added to their, their uh, program, um, you know, that I think they relate to that because they might not have that strength. And if they, they feel that they don't, they're going to then definitely lose some confidence when it comes to instructing in, in mathematics until they start to experience some successes. I think it's kind of interesting to consider if beliefs are a product of effort, one of the other concepts you spoke about, and results. And sometimes we feel like the effort that you know we are putting in is not correlating with the results that we are getting out. So do you feel like like what is it that, based on your experience, creates teacher belief? Uh, if, if it is clearly something that needs to change in order to uh, have a sense of collective efficacy, where do beliefs come from and what are the best sort of levers that we can pull to help teachers change their beliefs? Well, the sources of efficacy shaping beliefs are, are four things that, I, as I said previously, come from previous experiences. The number one most impo important source is what is referred to as mastery experiences. And that's when uh, teams or individuals experience success. And as they see that their efforts are paying off, they start to believe that if they put forth the same effort in the future, that they'd likely succeed. Yeah, so how do you encourage teachers? I, I just got off of a, a book study call that I did with the school and I could see they were, they were sort of hesitant to, 
to try out some of the things I was suggesting. So I said, look, just, just try it in one lesson, um, some baby steps. Like do you, when you're working long-term with schools, they, they bring you in to sort of work with their teachers. Are there specific things that you do to say, try little things to, to sort of encourage, almost like a bird flying out of the nest, try to encourage um, some, some changes in behavior to, to accrue those positive experiences? Yeah, like you were making some really important points is recognizing those small successes. And I think it's key not only to help people or encourage people to try something new, but I think what's really critical is helping them see that what they did um, resulted in some kind of improvement that, you know, some kind of a, a, you know, more reaching toward their goal. That's the critical aspect. And, you know, in the literature, they call that attribution theory. And it's when we attribute, like, you know, we can attribute success and or failure to things that are outside of our control. And that might sound like, oh, it's the homes where they come from, or students didn't study enough, or students aren't engaged. Or we can attribute success and failure to things that are within our control, like the strategies we use or the effort we put forth. And so it's that making sure that individuals and teams make that connection between what it was that they did and the resulting outcomes. And when I've seen you speak, I see you give examples outside of school. So of course, we're, we're our, our audience is mostly teachers and, and for, for you and I as author consultants, our audience is mostly teachers. But I love when you share collective efficacy beliefs outside of the classroom, outside of a school environment. Would you mind sharing with us um, one of your favorite examples of collective efficacy that's, that, that comes from outside of education? Sure. So um, this is one you probably you probably haven't heard yet, Julie. Um, there was, a, you know, you know, in 2004 there was a tsunami on the Thailand coast. People remember that on that Boxing Day. Um, communities were devastated, lots of damage, and a researcher by the name of Patton and some of his colleagues studied the collective efficacy amongst those communities that were devastated by that tsunami disaster. And the different communities along the coast had different levels of damage. And you would think that perhaps the communities that had the less amount to deal with, the less devastation, would have a higher sense of efficacy. But he found that wasn't the case. So that was one important thing to think about, that in areas where there was little damage, there was high efficacy, but also in different communities where there was massive damage, some of those communities had high levels of efficacy. And what he found was that where efficacy was present, the people in the community had the adaptive capacity to recover more quickly. And I think that's important because when we think about, um, you know, efficacy beliefs, people were more likely to band together um, to do what was needed immediately during the recovery efforts to, to rebuild their communities and it was that notion of adaptive capacity. Where does that adaptive capacity come from? Is it cultural? Is it communal? Is it personal? Is it a mix? Uh, I think that idea is, is very fascinating that the people and communities that have that ability to bounce back uh, are, are more likely to be successful. But where does that bounce back ability come from? Well, it's interesting you ask that because in the, the example I just gave with that research and the tsunami along the Thai coast, the researchers really described the culture and they described the culture in Thailand as very collectivist as opposed to individualist. 
And some of those uh, ways they described it was that uh, collaboration and cooperation were cultural dispositions. Um, all of the action was in relation to achieving collective goals. Uh, the Thai culture focuses on engaging in activities that are related to future shared objectives. And finally, a big emphasis on social relations and well-being. One of the things we talk a lot about, uh, I think this brings up a really good point in comparison, in comparison to the culture in the United States, you're from Canada, so it's less extreme in Canada, but still certainly there, the culture of individualism. And one thing that we talk about a lot about as a team is how people often put things as dichotomies, as things that are opposing each other. Would you say that an individualism and a collective efficacy are, are sort of opposing forces or is it, is it a little bit more complex than that? Um, that's a great question. I don't know. I, I like that you make that point that it's not necessarily has to be polar opposites, um, that polarity thinking. But I think that, that as far as um, when we think about the relationship between individual efficacy and collective efficacy, it, it's an important one. Um, we know that it's bi-directional, that we need to work on both and that the sources that influence efficacy beliefs are the same, whether we're talking about a group or an individual. Could you, and I understand what you mean by that. Could you, could you explain it a little bit more of, of what do you mean by the relationship between individual efficacy and collective efficacy? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So the studies show that, um, you know, we, when we look at studies, we, we often think of variables in relation to an antecedent and a consequence. And so researchers will sometimes assume um, that one follows the other, but the studies show that there's a bi-directional relationship, meaning that um, when individual efficacy is present, it results in collective efficacy and vice versa. When collective efficacy is present, um, even though individuals might not necessarily start out with having a high sense of individual efficacy, they can be convinced otherwise through the collective. And do you find any any sort of tipping points? Like if there's a faculty, let's just for ease of numbers, let's say there's a faculty of 100. Is there sort of like a certain number that needs to have this efficacious, this belief that they can overcome poverty? That, for example, they can overcome online or distance learning. Um, is there like a critical mass, like a percentage or a number of people that need to really believe in their power and their ability to sort of, that you've seen as like a tipping point or or does it just really vary? Um, that's a great question. I think it really varies. And I haven't seen any research that gives that magic number or that tipping point or the percentage. Um, but I think that if we have a team that shares that sense of efficacy, that they believe that what they're doing really makes a difference, I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think it can grow through a, an entire faculty. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been, I saw you, you put out a recent blog. I know you've been thinking a lot about um, like all of us, this new situation, um, is, is there, are there some key tips or ideas or even questions you're currently pursuing that sort of translates your work of collective efficacy to this environment where we're all inside of our homes, but where you are thankfully, uh, as opposed to <laughs> plagues or, or viruses of the past that have left, we didn't have the internet. Um, we can connect via technology, but what, what's sort of on your mind about this situation and collective efficacy? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting time, that's for sure. 
Um, that question makes me want to come back to something you had asked earlier around the sources of efficacy or how efficacy beliefs are formed. And I had mentioned mastery experiences being an important consideration. Um, other important considerations are what they refer to as affective states, and it's really just the way we feel uh, when we're taking a risk and, and when something has maybe not worked out or, um, you know, you feel anxiety, you feel stress. Um, and on the other hand, a positive affective state would be joy and excitement. And so these beliefs come into play when we're forming our beliefs about what we're capable of achieving in the future. And so when I think about the anxiety, perhaps that some teachers are experiencing right now, having to shift from face-to-face -to, -face to online learning, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're building um, positive affective states. And so I think it goes hand in hand with celebrating successes, um, keeping track of, of um, things that we've been able to accomplish. Um, the second most potent source of efficacy is vicarious experiences. So ensuring that teachers are seeing their colleagues meet with success and you know that idea of collaborating and continuously just focusing on what, it, what we're doing that's making a difference. Yeah, so almost, I'm just trying to think of ideas like teachers and maybe even school leaders sharing like a weekly email of successes that we had. Um, you know, we've passed out X number of laptops, X percentage of kids have logged on, or I don't even know. I mean, but maybe even some, some stories of success of maybe a kid who was struggling that's now doing really well um, in an online environment. I read a story about that, that some kids who weren't doing well in an in-person environment are doing better in an online environment. I don't know. I, be, I imagine that's the exception, but it's still happening. So highlighting those stories, like what are some other ideas? that if if that you could maybe suggest to either teachers or leaders to make those things happen I'm like a weekly email uh, I feel like there should be more than that um, I'm just wondering if you have something that's swirling around in your mind about how people might be able to do that yeah well I like the idea of what you said it's, it really comes down to sharing um, I've suggested that people keep lists that they start meetings out with success stories um, that they connect and continue to see what's possible. I think it sounds like kind of a connective thread through all of these is, is having an awareness of ourselves, of others, the relationships that we are forming, the beliefs that we have. So what are some ways that we could maybe foster that awareness? Uh, I think that like, you know, emails are, are, are seem to be a great idea. Sharing our experiences seem to be a great idea. Uh, but at the core, it just sort of sounds like there are all of these things that sort of happen that are maybe outside of maybe our, our bubble of awareness. And when we bring those things in, we become more aware of the relationship between all these different elements. We can feel more empowered because we begin noticing the relationship between what we do and what is happening. And we start paying attention to the things that are maybe outside of our control. Um, so we can then refocus on the things that are within our control. Because there's a lot outside of educators control right now. So what can we do to become more aware of what is in our control and then what is outside our control? I like what you said about that, Trevor, in the sense that what we do have now that we didn't have before, not all of us, because I have two small kids at home and I lost my childcare, but um, we, we have time 
And that's something I feel like the pace of life that we were living before all of this um, happened for many people, not everyone, but I feel like for many Americans, it was too, it was too much. It was too much, too fast, um, too busy to where you didn't have those times to pause. Um, and so that is in one way, a blessing that we, the silver lining, I should say, of, of the current situations that we do have time um, that maybe we didn't have before to pause and reflect, unless you have small kids. I want to give the shout out to the parents out there who I know people who have twins or breastfeeding or, you know, all of these things happening while they're trying to teach kids. I was also thinking that what's important is to help teachers understand how things are similar and different. And so using the example that we've been talking about in relation to online learning, I think by helping them, you know, address concerns around uh, management or their personal concerns, how much time is this going to take me? If we help them to see how teaching online is very similar in many ways to the face-to-face -face learning, you know, pedagogy is pedagogy. So what does a good lesson entail, et cetera? Um, then I think that helps to alleviate some of those concerns. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's right of highlighting that it's not completely uh, a new skill set. It's the tools of which we would deliver our lessons that's new. But as far as the in basics of instructional design remain the same of, of checking for understanding all of those things. And in some ways, technology we know is, is better um, at checking for understanding. I'm old school, so I'm like, I like to walk around and read over kids' shoulders while they're writing um, in their journals, you know, with a pencil uh, in cursive. I'm that old school. But um, anyway, I feel like now we can... I, I hope that teachers will take a lot of the, the benefits of technology back into brick and mortar classrooms that, that allow you to check for understanding in a, in a more efficient way. So I do, I do think that's also a piece of it. Jenny, I, what I love about that frame is just like with our students, it starts with what do you already know? What skills do you already have? It, it's not a deficit mindset. It, it's, of course, teachers need to become aware of the fact that you know, online instructional design is a different beast. But if you start by saying, okay, everyone, uh, welcome to online instructional design, throw away everything that you know, talk about a recipe for anxiety, talk about a, a feeling of, of disempowerment. But when you start with what is similar, it's a really easy frame in terms of just asking that question. And then, okay, now that we know what is similar, let's also consider what is different. I think that's, that seems like a good kind of dialectical model of bouncing back and forth between what do we already know and, and how can it be used and what do we need to know? Like where are our gaps in that understanding based on that prior knowledge? And I think that just seems to be the way that whether you're, you're talking about teachers or students, starting from a place of what do you already know? What are you already doing? And then from there seeking out new information as opposed to you know, being thrown into the, the deep end uh, and just saying everything has changed. I think that's, that's a really simple but powerful reconfiguration just of the, how we present the task of transitioning to online learning. Um, just in general of any change of anything that we're about to do, like what do we already know that's really good um, and that we want to keep doing? I think that's, that's, a great, that's a great framing for any, any type of change that we're trying to make. I was going to just bring up the notion then of not losing track of high expectations or not losing sight of high expectations when we're talking about the tasks that we're designing for our students online. Um, you know, I, I get troubled sometimes seeing some of the posts in social media, um, you know, that kids are getting work that might be review. And I think that that's important to initially become comfortable as a new online learner, but that we can't just 
continue to give busy work and review and that we have to think about the, the learning and that we want to ensure that the tasks we design, we're still holding high expectations for what we know kids are capable of doing. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point because I feel like we, we, we started this off by thinking, okay, maybe two weeks. Okay, maybe a month. Okay, maybe two months. And now we're in this place of like unknown how long. And so I think we have to, which is natural. It's totally, nobody was prescient to, uh, I feel like how long this was gonna was gonna take because it was also new. And I feel like at this moment in time that we're talking, it's important for us to think about, but how to go beyond just review stuff, um, especially for your kids who are, they're done with that. Uh, my, my two are, are definitely in that category. My husband said, how did it go today whenever we were doing the online learning? And I was like, oh, we reviewed things he knew probably two, three years ago. Um, and so, you know, we definitely want to make sure that John Hattie talked about last week on his Facebook Live with Peter DeWitt was about overlearning certain things and, and that to be a relatively good thing. At the same time, I think what you're saying is really important, which we can't, we can't overlearn the same things for, I don't know, nine months, 10 months, uh, a year and a half, which is maybe how long it's going to take to create a vaccine. Um, we do have to, at a certain point, say to ourselves, maybe kids can learn, maybe we can go beyond. And I, th- I think it's an important distinction to consider when we talk about high expectations, what does that look like? By what metrics are we measuring those expectations? Because I think that a lot of times when we hear high expectations, some teachers tend to think, well, I need to recreate my classroom environment or I need to make sure that I'm giving students a lot of work. So they're covering a lot of ground. And I think that what we're really talking about is, is intellectual rigor what we're really talking about is pushing students to think more deeply, maybe not to think about more and regulate this, you know, difficult cognitive load of not being in the classroom, but to not make the content that we're exploring shallow. We can manage our expectations in terms of whether students have, you know, equitable access. We can manage our expectations in terms of when students get assignments in. We can manage our expectations and temper them when it comes to, you know, the grade that goes in the grade book. And I think that that's, it's, it's an important distinction to consider. You can still have high expectations for the intellectual challenge that you put forth to your students while still being accommodating and understanding of all of those other things. So I think that, you know, without that distinction, it could go one way or the other, where, you know, you have really high expectations for, for due dates, really high expectations for, you know, uh, grade low or whatever. But the intellectual rigor is low. Or you could flip that where... Um, students don't really feel like they're, they're being supported. So I think that it's so important to say that that intellectual uh, challenge can still remain while, re- while being flexible about all of these other sort of maybe logistical or administrative concerns. Absolutely. And I think what you're talking about too is really critical when we think about developing student self-efficacy. They need to see that teachers have expectations for them to be engaged in productive struggle and they need to understand um, other expectations, of course, like accountability, participation, and time expectations when we're talking about online learning. But the, that expectation for productive struggle is so critical, uh, coupled with positive reassurance. I know you can do this. This is the, you know, and so when we think about this um, concept of efficacy, we can talk about it in terms of students as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between teachers, sort of our faculty's collective uh, efficacy and student efficacy? 
Yeah, we know that, um, and I can speak to it from more of a deficit model, when staff have a weakened sense of individual and collective efficacy, we know through research that that weakens students' efficacy. And that when students, especially struggling students, are taught by a teacher who, who has a lack of efficacy, um, then students will continue to struggle. That's such an important thing, I feel like, for, for whether it's central office or school leadership to, to be aware of that by empowering teachers, you are thereby empowering students. And I think that that is uh, something that could be missed uh, kind of easily uh, when, when teachers are sort of turned into uh, delivery vehicles for content or uh, are more, maybe they're looking more at the administrative concerns as opposed to thinking, what can I do to help my teacher feel empowered in the classroom? Um, because at the end of the day, we are, we are there you know, to, to help and serve students, but again, this sort of not wanting to put things in a binary, in order to do that, you also need to empower teachers. And I think that that's, that's something that hearing it makes complete and total sense, but I don't know if I've heard it phrased that way before, but it makes, you know, it stands to reason that if you walk into a class every day and you, your teacher feels defeated, you know, how can you inculcate any sense of belief in that kind of environment? So I think that's a really powerful uh, thing to consider. And I love that relationship between high expectations and, and what's the word you use? Positive reinforcement? Is that what you said? Or positive? Coupled with positive reassurance. Reassurance. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm, transferring, I'm transferring the relationship between high expectations and positive reassurance to parenting. Um, like, put your clothes on. I know you can do it. I'm here if you need help. <laughs> Let's get our socks and shoes on. You guys can do it. <laughs> I feel like this turns fairly naturally into a discussion about collaboration, whether it's the collaboration between school leadership and teachers or teachers and students across departments, uh, you know, collaboration as a family unit to pull in Julie's uh, example. So I feel like collaboration is one of those things that is, is sort of like a note. Of course, when people work together, good things happen. But can you talk to us a little bit about what sort of environmental, communal, cultural things need to be in place in order for collaboration to happen. I think there's a big difference between the idea that collaboration is good and creating an environment where it's possible. So can you explore that a little bit? Yeah, I think that, well, we all know that time is critical for people to come together to collaborate. That's always the number one, uh, you know, factor that comes up when people talk about some of those barriers. Um, so if we can find the time, then I think it's also important to consider that people can come together to collaborate to reinforce the status quo or they can come together to collaborate to reinvent teaching and learning. And so I think structures that um, engage teachers in joint problem solving are very important to ensure that the collaboration is, in, is focused on instructional improvement. And that can be efficacy enhancing because um, when we see that we're having an impact and that our joint effort and our joint work is making a difference, we start to then build a greater sense of efficacy together. I'm wondering if one of the challenges, and we had talked about this earlier, where teachers need to see a sort of causality between what they're doing and the benefits or the effects of what they're doing. And for some of these intangible things, it feels like that it'd be difficult. You know, what metric can you use to create a data set that shows uh, short term, at least, effects or results of collaboration? It feels very feels qualitative and maybe it could be quantified, but it takes a lot of time. You can't just have, you know, one, uh, you know, staff 
empowerment meeting and expect everybody to, to go away and have there be this transformational shift that shows up in quantitative data. So how can you get teachers to, or, or leadership to consider the long-term long effects, to get that buy-in, to know that you're not going to see this in the data set tomorrow. Um, and it might even be difficult to quantify in any meaningful way across the board, but the dividends will be there. Like the, the, the scores will improve, which is a very tangible data set, when the relationships and collaboration improves, which is a very intangible data set that's more long-term. Well, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking to me, the most important thing that a PLC can do or a team coming together is to look at evidence of student learning. And I think that, you know, that those artifacts can be day-to-day -day conversations, observations, student work products, but that's a critical piece that, you know, I know test scores are important and, and those might be longer term indications that we're meeting mastery and, and making progress toward our goals but that it's critical for teams to have student work and evidence of student um, progress and achievement in relation to learning intention, success criteria that's been articulated, the goals that teams have set. Um, and that's why I love Hattie's work, you know, know thy impact. And I'm using the phrase now, know thy collective impact. And without examining evidence of student learning, then teams aren't going to realize that. Anecdotally, I see that all the time with schools that I work with that though that the moment that I feel like the sort of tipping moments um, are when the teacher bursts out of the classroom like you have to come and see what these first graders just did and they're just so excited that they like leave their classroom for to get other people to come and see um, what students just did and how how amazing did those students feel that their teacher was so proud that they ran out to get other people to tell them about it um, and so yes I for sure see that um, in just anecdotally I'm glad to see that that's in a, a actual research and it sounds like vulnerability is really important too, because when that first grade teacher busts out of our classroom, it's like, yes, my kids crushed this lesson and you're down the hall and you're like, oh my God, my kids did not crush that lesson. I was a dumpster fire. Uh, we all have those dumpster fire days. So, so how can you, how can you celebrate? And it sounds like vulnerabilities is a key idea here. How can you celebrate successes of others and yourself? Um, well, we'll also lending a helping hand to, I guess, get everyone to experience that success. So it's not just this one rock star teacher, you know, gaining all the, the adoration and always talking about how everything is great in their classroom. Um, but being open to being vulnerable and sharing, you know, I had a lesson that just did not hit today, or I had goals that I did not reach. How can you facilitate that environment where people are comfortable being vulnerable? Well, I think for me, part of the key for a leader is to demonstrate vulnerability as a leader, uh, model it. That would be my number one thought um, because it is tricky, right? It is a fine line. Um, too many celebrations can go wrong. Like, you know, I'm thinking of, we had this celebration where every month someone in the department was given a, a diamond and it said, you're awesome. And, you know, it just became a silly exercise because you know you'd look in when it was your turn to pass it off who didn't get it yet you know so um, being authentic um, in the celebrations but making sure that we do honor and acknowledge when people have had small wins um, but also just demonstrating that vulnerability as as a leader I, I think that yeah that's that's such a that's such a challenge of, of finding that threading that needle of you want to be show enough competence and control that your staff trusts you to get the job done. 
But how can you balance that between being vulnerable enough to show them that sometimes you're going to make a mistake? And I feel like uh, typically on that scale, it, it tends more towards competence and control than it does towards vulnerability. But I think that counterintuitive and paradoxical ideas, when you show that you are vulnerable, that actually makes people feel more like you are, are competent and that you are in control. Because I think that there, there's no quicker way as a leader to have people not take you seriously than to act as though you're in control all the time. And it's, it doesn't happen very often. And even just in the classroom setting, uh, it always blows my kids' minds when I, I spell a word wrong or I'm writing an assertion and I'm like, this is, this is bad. This is a bad assertion. I messed up. I need to erase this. And they're like, but you're, you're like an English teacher, dude. Like, this is your job. You made a mistake. And I'm like, I did. I did. And just that, that, that little lesson, that little, um, those little moments of humility, I think go a long way because I'm, I, some of my uh, honor students, they, they hold themselves to this impossible standard and they never allow themselves to make mistakes. And if I wasn't showing them that I'm making mistakes too, it would be, it would be wrong for me to say, Oh, it's okay for you to make mistakes. I don't cause I'm perfect. Cause I'm an adult. <laughs> so how do you, I don't know, how do you, how do you thread that needle of being competent and control in control enough to inspire confidence, but vulnerable enough to show that, you know, you aren't perfect. You know, and it's probably, this isn't answering that question, but as you guys were talking and I was trying to think of an example of an administrator who's demonstrated vulnerability, all I can think of is in my experience, tons of examples where people needed to appear right and not admit they were wrong, even mm -hmm. when they were wrong. Um, and I've got a million of those examples, which is I'm finding very curious and as, we're, as I'm thinking about this. And again, I could probably come up with some, but the fact that those are the ones that are surfacing, as uh, you know, Trevor's describing that idea of control. So, When you say needed to be right, what do you mean? That they felt they needed to be right or that they actually needed to be right? example that's in my mind is a consultant stood up in front of a group of people, um, shared something that was ina inaccurate. A principal approached her at the side and let her know that it was inaccurate. I suggested that she go up and, and tell the audience about her mistake and she refused to do so. I said, mm -hmm. they, they need clarity and I think it's really important and this is an opportunity for you to come back up. And, and so... You know, she just so, so you they felt that couldn't they do that. needed to be right, and they felt that their credibility was going to be perhaps uh, just completely vanish if if they if they admitted their mistake. Huh, how unfortunate! I feel like I <laughs> am totally fine telling people that I've made a mistake. <laughs> Another one of our guests, uh, Adam Hansen, one of his favorite phrases is, "Would you rather be right, or would you rather be effective?" Because yeah. to your point, Jenny, sometimes in our pursuit. Of, of rightness, of vindication, of that aha, gotcha moment. We, we completely dismantle any opportunity we had to, to build a bridge to be an effective leader. Do you study at all or see any overlap in your research with psychology with the, because we're talking about beliefs. Like, do you, do you look at, I'm almost thinking, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy where, you know, you analyze your thoughts in order to sort of figure out what, what sort of your deep seated beliefs, like, do you, do you, see some overlap with collective efficacy in the field of psychology? This is where it lives, really, Julie. And I'm not a psychologist, but the co-author of the third book was Stephen Katz uh, out of Ontario Institute of Studies and Education. Um, so it, and when you go back to the original sources in Bandura, he's doing a lot of deep, like deep digging into the, the psychology behind this and a lot of the studies 
Um, so it, it's interesting, but definitely that's where collective efficacy sits as a, in, in that domain. It, it does sound like the personal bleeds into the professional here. The, uh, our, our need to be right or our desire for control or what our beliefs are, what our expectations are for ourselves. Even though it sounds like at the beginning of our call, we talked about the, we need to be able to differentiate between different contexts when we have efficacy. So how do you balance, you know, sort of navigating some of those more personal questions with the fact that these are playing out in a professional setting? So do you mean like, uh, how do you, how, to, how does efficacy in your personal life relate to your professional life? Is that what you're asking? And I don't know if they would, because remember the point that efficacy beliefs mm -hmm. are situational specific. So, so one, one, just asking for a friend could be an incredible author about educating children, but not so great with their own children. I'm just kidding. <laughs> for a friend. <laughs> no, but I feel like this pressure as, as an education professional that like when my kids misbehave at school or something, I'm like, oh my God, do you guys know who I am? Stop that. Um, and I do, I imagine there's a lot of people who, who probably feel that way. Maybe the social worker of the school whose own kids attend school, um, maybe feel that sort of pressure with their own kids. You're making me think about the research behind uh, theories of action. And there's two theories of action that people come to, you know, different experiences with. And one is their espoused theory, and that's what they say they believe and do. And then the second one is their theory in use, and that's what they actually say and do. <laughs> Ooh, that's powerful. How do, how do you reconcile that? How do you get people to come to terms to that? Well, it, and it comes in different ways, but I think that um, because there's often a gap, right, between what I say and do. In my experience with some teachers, um, an inquiry approach to professional learning has helped to uncover that those discrepancies between the two theories. Um, for example, a teacher, um, you know, might, well, the, one of the biggest, they say, that is that teachers... Uh, often espouse that they believe student-centered classrooms are most important, but when you go in and observe, it's very much teacher-controlled classrooms. That's one of the biggest mismatches. Um, there was another study recently that I read. It was interesting. The researcher was looking at the mismatch between teachers' assessment practices in, the, in what they say they believe and then what they actually do, and he found 10 mismatches um, one, for example, was that, in a, so these were English teachers and they were grading students' written essays. And the teachers largely believed that the editing codes that they used, students couldn't decipher, but they continued to use the editing codes when giving feedback. Um, they also believed that when they gave both uh, written feedback and a grade, that students ignored the written feedback, but they continued to do that in their practice. So I think as system leaders, it's just important to help teachers by, by just pointing those things out sometimes. You know, I write a lot about these, these things in my books. It it's must be so hard to confront that. So speaking as an English teacher, I think the one thing that all English teachers know is we spend way too much time writing individual comments on individual pieces of paper that really don't translate into an improvement of writing. And I know that I've had conversations with colleagues before where, you know, both of us are acknowledging that reality, but it's so hard to, to be like, that's just sort of the habit that we have. That's just what, how we've been trained. And it's sometimes it's almost a question of, well, this is what I believe. This is what I espouse, but I don't know what the alternative looks like. So I think that um, 
that could definitely require some professional soul searching in terms of like, what am I saying I believe versus what's actually happening in my classroom? And I'd imagine I don't envy a school leader to ask a teacher to confront that because like, oh, I believe in student-centered classroom. And, you know, and then be like, but do you really? <laughs> you know, that it's kind of a, it's almost, uh, it's, it's without intending to, I could almost feel like that'd be seen as like a challenge, you know, maybe to like mm. one's integrity or one's honesty or something when, Wow. It's incredible how just in our short conversation, how many branches we've taken. So to me, this has reinforced um, the idea that collective efficacy and exploring it and taking the time. Um, I love when you contrast in your workshops, Jenny, sort of real collective efficacy with like fake (laughs) hashtag collective efficacy that you've seen sort of on social media and things like that. Like it's much more than team builder, um, much more than um, sort of barbecues (laughs) and things like that. Um, That's way more complex. Uh, But I really do appreciate you taking the time and and breaking it down for us. Um, It's reinforced that I need to go explore more of this very important idea we appreciate you navigating all of these other sort of side alleys and avenues that we go down whenever we talk about complex human things. And one of the things I appreciate about your work, Jenny, is that you take these complex personal professional things and you have a framework that allows teachers to have a shared language they can use to navigate. So uh, if people want to find more of your work, uh, where can they reach out to? Um, Well, they could go to teacher-efficacy.com as a website. They'll find resources. That's the Center for Collective Efficacy that we've established. Um, And of course, they can uh, Google me. They can find my contact information online. Uh, My Twitter handle is Jenny underscore Donahue, and that's D-O-N-O-H-O-O. And uh, I really appreciate you having me as a guest on your show today. So thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transverse.